0: and here we are together again at the second location. I mean, how does this keep happening? Us meeting up like this? Well, I'm Holly and I'm continuing our discussion of the conviction of Tommy Ziegler. But the question is, will I be able to wrap this case up before the DNA results come back? Well, I really don't know. Well, time's a wasting, so let's get started. Because right now, the defense is beginning its case. And they start by calling a witness that admitted He gave edward williams twenty dollars on christmas eve the man claimed that this was a loan but williams had testified it was for work that he had done now this man testified that he had no idea that williams had done any work for him that day and he expected the money to be paid back to him in my opinion this makes williams look both like a liar, and a man who really needed money. I mean, he is borrowing 20 bucks from a guy on the day of the murders. And Edward Williams' money troubles might provide a motive for his involvement in the murders. Perhaps he was paid to get Tommy in that store that night. It's a theory, you know, basically that this was a hit that was planned on Tommy on Christmas Eve. And Eunice and her folks were killed because he walked in on this setup. Now, next up was the manager of Williams' apartment building. She testified that she talked with Williams as he was leaving the building on Christmas Eve evening. During his testimony... Williams said that he didn't talk to anyone as he left his apartment complex. So right there, we have the apartment manager saying she talked to him as he left. That's another lie. And these are small lies or inconsistencies, we'll say. But when you lie about the little things, maybe you lie about the big things too. And that's something just to keep in your mind is when you lie about the small details, it's because you're setting up to something bigger usually. Okay. Anyway, the apartment manager also described Williams outfit as all shades of brown. Once again, all shades of brown. That's not the outfit he turned into the police. So, she said this encounter was also was around 7 in the evening. Based on her description of the light outside, it could have been up to an hour earlier. So, she said 7 o'clock, but she also was saying that it was still very light outside. So, it made people think that maybe this was earlier than 7. And Williams had testified that he went straight to Tommy's house from his apartment, a drive that takes about two and a half minutes. But if he had left his apartment around 7 or even earlier... Then he should arrive at Tommy's much earlier than the 728 time that Williams claimed that he arrived. He doesn't say when he left his apartment because he never looks at his watch at all that day. doesn't seem like except for the 728 when he arrives at Tommy's. So he says he arrives at 728, but you got his landlady saying, that he had left the apartment building that's only two and a half minutes away at seven. And if you go by her description of how much light it was outside, people think it might have been even earlier. So what was he doing in that time between when he left his apartment and when he arrived to meet up with Tommy at Tommy's house? I seriously wonder if he wasn't over at the Ziegler Furniture Store setting some stuff up for the, what's going to go on later. And maybe he was there when what happened to Eunice and her family and her parents their murders maybe he was there for that okay another set of defense witnesses it's Patricia and Richard Smith they testified that they saw two cars parked in front of the furniture store on the night of the murders at 7 57. Patricia testified that Neither of the cars were Curtis Dunaway's Oldsmobile. She knew what his Oldsmobile looked like. She was familiar with it, and she said it was definitely not his car. Richard Smith was the head of physical therapy at the local hospital. And remember, he was the person that told Tommy that Eunice had died. I remember how he described how Tommy just wept silently when he was told about her death? I thought that was so. It says a lot about Tommy that he keeps so much on the inside, I think. And I think that's probably played well with him for the, what he's had to go through with being in prison on death row for 40 some years for a crime he didn't commit. If he wore his emotions on the outside, I don't think he would have been able to last. But so what we have there is we've got Patricia and Richard Smith saying at 757. They look at a clock. I think they look at an outdoor clock, like something would be like at a bank or something like that. And they see that it's 7.57 and they're in a hurry to get somewhere. So that's why they know at the time. Um, I think they have people meeting them at their house that night. So anyways, so they know it's 7.57 and they see two cars parked outside the furniture store and they can know that they are not Curtis Dunaway's cars. Now, another eyewitness that was called by the defense was Lee Jones, who also testified that at 7.25, he saw two cars parked in the front of the store. So these aren't just people just dip it in. Which, why would there people just be dipping in? It's Christmas Eve at 7, between 7 and 8. No one thinks that furniture store is open. And no one's going to buy furniture then. So, something's going on that these cars are outside the furniture store. And people are seeing them. Because we know that Eunice's parents would be parked outside the furniture store. But whose car is that second car that's parked there, too, is the question. Oh, it's also important to note in the um, Patricia and Richard Smith, that was the couple, he was a physical therapist. And they were the couple that saw the two cars parked out in front of Ziegler's at 757. They noted that the store was completely dark and they saw a large sedan and a smaller car that was very dark and about the size of a Mustang or a Camaro, like a sports car type of car parked out front. Now, Richard Smith, he notices some very specific details about the furniture store that night. First off, he notices that the store is dark, completely dark. Like he had never seen the store dark like that at night before. And it makes you wonder he's seeing it when the power has been taken out already. That's what I think, that all the electricity is off in the store at this point. And he also notes that there's a large sedan in the front parking lot and there is a small, dark car. Very dark, they said, and about the size of a Mustang or a Camaro. Now, Edward Williams has a Camaro, but how could this be Edward Williams' Camaro? Because his was in the shop, right? But when he goes to pick up it at the garage... The Camaro starts up and works. So Who the hell knows? I'm just saying. I do find it slightly odd that a Camaro is, it's not the world's most most common car. Someone's tied up with the murderers, owns a type of car that is being ID'd, it's being parked in the parking lot there that night. And the only evidence we have that that car was actually at a garage to be worked on is the word of Edward Williams. I don't know that the police confirmed that. I know that the girls that gave Edward Williams a lift that night, they dropped him off at the garage. You don't, we don't know the details of that exactly. Was it there for repair? Or was it there to get like an oil change you know I mean there was there something about the car where you knew it was going to be working and the idea of you could use it that night and have it involved in the murders but at the same time be like it was in the garage it couldn't have been there I don't know just that type of thing it gets your real spinning but who the hell knows I'm just saying I find it unusual that there's people that saw our car parked outside the crime scene and one of the people that is in possession of the murder weapon two of the other murder weapons are registered to his friend and now we got his his type of car model is parked outside the crime scene on the night of the murders i think that's really that really makes me think that something is going on So anyway, the Smiths came forward with what they saw, you know, the store being dark and the the cars parked out front on December 27th, and Detective Fry questioned them rather aggressively, kind of pressuring them on their statement about a dark, small car. But the couple were very familiar with Curtis Dunaway's car, and they were positive that the car they saw was not two-toned like Dunaway's car. They knew it wasn't his. They knew it was a small, dark-colored car. The Smiths always held firm about what they saw that night. Two cars, a large sedan, and a small, dark, sporty car. Specifically, they knew that neither car was Curtis Dunaway's car. Help Don Fry put more pressure on the Smiths than he ever put on edward williams or felton thomas and these are respectable people that they don't have a, a you know a horse in the race as much as edward williams does i mean he's got everything else tied to him at the scene he's got more reason to lie than these people do i mean this man's the head of the physical therapy at the hospital i mean i think that's a kind of respected position and i'm not saying people in that position can't be liars they can't be criminals but i'm saying he doesn't have a reason to lie like edward williams does but it's the smiths these respectable people. They're friends with Tommy, but I mean, are you going to make up a lie to cover for a friend that might have killed his wife and his in-laws? I wouldn't. This isn't some minor thing you're covering for somebody on some little sketchy detail about punching somebody in for work when they're going to be five minutes late. This is something major. You're, you're trying to muddy water on a crime, you know, a murder, multiple murder, and I just don't think I just don't think you can act like people do that willy-nilly. So I think like they say they saw this and Detective Fry just keeps trying to get them to change their story to the point where I know Patricia seemed like she felt uncomfortable about it. He's pushing and he's not pushing other people and that's just that's not how we investigate things. Wait I'm sorry that's not how one should investigate things but that is how Detective Fry investigates things and that's why he does a real shitty job. Okay now that's not the last time we hear about a dark car. Ziegler's neighbor edward reeves he lives across the street from tommy he left his house on christmas eve around 8 p.m to grab some last minute holiday booze gotta love these people getting their last minute holiday booze people plan ahead i mean holiday booze don't you get that first i guess you don't because you drink it all before the holiday came Mm -hmm. maybe i do party a little too hard anyway so edward reeves he notices tommy's truck in his driveway and keep in mind this is a time when edward williams should have been sitting in his truck waiting for tommy in the driveway according to the prosecution but reeves does not see William's truck in the driveway. He saw a dark car parked behind Tommy's truck. When Reeves got back to his house, the dark car was still in Tommy's driveway. Keep in mind that Richard and Patricia Smith saw a dark car parked in front of the furniture at 757. Could this be the same car that Dr. Reeves saw parked in Tommy's driveway? Probably not. Maybe. If if we can fudge on times a little bit, it could be because Edward Reeves says he, he left him around 8. So 757, to 8 o'clock. The furniture store is not far from the Ziegler home. I can't remember exactly what it was. I know it's under five minutes. So if Edward Reeves, is he saying left around eight? I mean, maybe left around 8.05, 8.07. I don't know. And I don't know if it's, I know it's under five minutes between the distance, I would say. I would say it's a possibility. Also, it could be a different car. But my point is, there's a smaller, dark car that keeps popping up in this story a little more frequently than I like. You got one at the, at the Ziegler furniture store, and you got one outside of Tommy's house parked in his driveway. Dr. Edward Reeves... Now, that's the neighbor. He was saw this car parked outside a Tommy's driveway at various times on Christmas Eve. And he was definite that it was a car and not a truck that he saw in the driveway. And I'm going to come back to this dark car later when I try to describe my own theory on the events that night. This is a case I can't figure out other than I know that Tommy Ziegler did not get a fair trial. I just can't put together in my mind exactly what happened that night because I think we are getting information from people. So, some people are lying, I think. Um, And some people I think might just be misremembering things because at the time this was all happening, the, the times and exactly what they saw and when wasn't as important to them as it was going to turn out to be after they realized that they were, you know, constructing a timeline that's related to the murder of four people. Okay, so now next up for the defense were the Nolans. They had seen Edward Williams arrive at the KFC that night. Now, Ed Nolan had died of cancer since his deposition and the defense could have used his deposition statement at trial but you have to keep this in mind when you do that you have to admit the whole deposition into evidence and old ed had used the n-word to describe edward williams he used this in reference to the fact about his inability to tell black people apart after they had changed their clothes and the defense they chose not to introduce ed's deposition and this was a big loss to the defense ed and Nolan actually opened the locked door of the KFC for Williams, recalled Williams' all-brown outfit, and spoke to Williams about calling the police. You can't, I agree with the defense on this. It, as important as Ed's testimony is, they can't let that deposition statement where he uses that racial slur. It's just going to inflame a jury too much. I don't know if it would make them completely discredit uh, Ed Nolan's testimony, but I just, I think it could. I think the risk is too big there. And I think, I think this is a move, calculated decision that they just, I don't think they had much choice, but they lost a lot. Okay, I just want to remind everybody how important Ed Nolan's testimony would have been to the defense if he'd actually been able to testify at trial because first ed nolan testified that edward williams was wearing an all-brown outfit when he went to the kfc that night after the murders remember ed williams handed into the police a black cardigan sweater and green pants now there's other people at the kfc and they all agree that edward williams is wearing a brown outfit so on that note edward nolan's testimony well important it's cumulative other people can testify to the same thing but what's important also about ed is he's like a regular at that kfc he knows it's hours you know it's business policies, you know, when they start to do things, and he's the guy that locked the door at the KFC that night, and he's the one that unlocked the door to let Ed in, so he knows when he locked that door, when he normally locks that door, so he knows when that happened, and that gives him a better time frame for estimating when he saw Edward Williams enter the KFC. While that's important, once again, that is cumulative in a way, because other people can testify to the time when they saw Edward Williams arrive at the store, including Ed Nolan's um, sister-in-law and brother, but here's the part when the defense lost Ed Nolan's testimony. They lost something that only Ed saw that night, because Ed stuck around after the KFC closed, and he went over to the Ziegler Furniture Store and stood around in a crowd of people that was outside the store watching the events unfold. In that crowd, in that crowd, Ed Nolan testified that he saw the man he had let into the KFC that night, who asked, used the phone to call the police. So basically, Ed Nolan saw in the crowd standing outside the Ziegler Furniture Store while the police were investigating the murders. Ed Nolan saw Edward Williams standing. Outside that furniture store in that crowd. There's no one else that saw that. And when the defense lost the ability to enter Edward Nolan's testimony because of what he said, truly inappropriate, disgusting language. I will say it's a sign of the times in Florida, and that doesn't mean it's okay. It just means it would be more common back then than it would be today. Let's put it that way. Just as wrong. just more common that's disgusting statement but shows you know we're getting a little bit better but my point is when ed nolan died that was a real important aspect of tommy's defense that died with ed nolan because no one else saw edward williams out there in that crowd that night now could ed nolan have been wrong yes i mean look what he said about certain people all looking alike once they changed their clothes He very well could have been wrong. But the idea that Edward Williams never says he went back to Ziegler Furniture Store that night. He has that Mary Stewart. She never says that. It had some questions of what exactly Edward Williams was doing in that time frame from when he said he left the Ziegler Furniture Store and when he actually went to the police to report what had happened that night. And without Edward Nolan, you have no one else saying that Edward Williams went to the furniture store, watched the police collecting evidence and processing the scene, and never once went to the police and approached them and told them what he had seen that night. And it's powerful and it's gone when Edward Nolan passes away. Okay, so the defense, they still had Ed's brother and sister-in-law who also saw Williams at the KFC. That's Madeline Nolan. Now she testified that she and her husband left their home that night at 9.15 to go to her mother's house to help prepare the next day's big Christmas meal. On the way to her mom's house, a car pulled out in front of them, nearly hitting them before it pulled into the furniture store. Now this car that almost hit the Nolans was driven by officer Yon as he responded to Tommy's call for help. Now, Madeline and her husband, they pulled over and they're facing the furniture store and watched as Tommy was carried out of the store by Chief Thompson. Now, she and her husband noticed Ed, Nolan, at the door of the KFC and went over to see him. Now, according to the wife, while they explained to Ed that something was going on over at the furniture store, a quote, colored man came to the door asking to use the phone okay so i'm gonna say it's still not the best term but it's a hell of a lot better, better than the one ed used to describe edward williams but still i'm like Nor! could we coach these people a little bit better on this but i mean definitely a big step up from what old ed said anyway she describes seeing edward williams arrive at the kfc after tommy was carried out of the furniture store that it's sinking folks williams arrived according to witnesses at the kfc After Tommy had been carried out of the store, that is major. It's important to note that the prosecution didn't even cross-examine this witness because they didn't have anything to challenge her with. Now, next up is Ed Nolan's brother, J.D. Nolan. Now, his testimony matches his wife's, but it also includes that when the man asked to use the phone, um, J.D. Nolan, that's, you know, the brother, told him he didn't know if it would be able to because the restaurant was closed. The restaurant had closed at 9. And across, the prosecution asked um, J.D. if he had ever been shown any photographs of black men, and J.D. said that he hadn't, which is a failure on the part of the police. I don't know if that's a failure on the part... Like, does the defense need to do that? I mean, I guess they could say, is this the guy you saw? But I don't know what the prosecution is getting at that. If they wanted that guy to be able to ID who he saw, that the police could do that, you know, instead of spending all their time trying to drum up rumors about, you know, Tommy Ziegler being a homosexual, maybe, maybe we'll try to get Some eyewitnesses to ID people might be a better plan. But, you know, who the hell knows? I mean, I also think they could have followed up with this witness to see if he could ID Edward Williams. But these police, they just never seem to do photo lineup. Um, I mean, they never had Felton Thomas ID Tommy out of a lineup. Hell, they didn't even ask Felton to describe the white man he met. And, you know, knew as Ziggler's. On that night, there's no description taken of who did you see this night? Who did you drive around with? Who's this man that tried to break into Ziggler's? What he looked like? They didn't ask any of that. So I'm just going to say this. Their identification process is real weak. Now, I want to say that the testimony of these defense witnesses, it's really quick. It's very rapid. And the defense frequently ran out of witnesses early. And that doesn't look good to the jury. It makes your case look underwhelming. When it seems like what, if it's rapid fire and they keep coming and it's steady, but when it's rapid fire and there's big gaps in between and... You're, you're having to cut things out early because you don't have enough it makes it look like you don't have that much testimony you don't have that much evidence on your side when well, that's not really the case it's just you have a whole bunch of you're doing things in a quicker more aggressive more to the point style but maybe that wasn't the style to take whereas the prosecution took all that time to show you everybody had touched a piece of evidence it made the evidence seem bulkier more overwhelming. This quick, quick, quick paste, which I think is more engaging, um, and I think it would work for an intelligent jury. I think an intelligent jury would see the difference there, but I don't think that's what we had in this case. I think they saw this took so long for them to talk about this. That means it's more impressive, the prosecution side. Now they're seeing the defense breeze through these witnesses quickly, and I think they're mm, giving less weight to what they're saying and the impact overall of the uh, level of, um, well, not the level, the magnitude of the evidence that they're portraying and um, showing is it really seeking in? The testimony of the defense witnesses was so quick and rapid that the defense was frequently running out of witnesses early. And I think maybe the importance of the Nolan's. Testimony was lost in this rapid shuffle of witnesses because Edward Williams testified that he arrived at the KFC at 8 45. But the Nolans testimony has him arriving after 9 18 because the Nolans watched the police carry Tommy out of the furniture store before Edward Williams arrived at the KFC. Tommy had placed the call for help at 9 18. So it takes a couple minutes for the two minutes, we'll say, they get there. The police show up at 9 20 to get Tommy out of the store. That means Edward Williams is showing up after 9 20 at the KFC, even though, according to his timeline, he's there at 8.45. So there's a half hour or a little bit more discrepancy between when Edward Williams says that he got to the KFC and when the witnesses saw him arrive. And the question is, what was Edward Williams doing in that half hour? Okay, we'll get back to it. But let's go on with some more of the defense witnesses. The defense also calls for the witness stand, Tommy's mother, Biola, love the name now she testified about the missing one thousand dollars and other various cash amounts that were missing from the store and also there was a gold watch and some valuable coins that were missing as well this all goes to support the notion that there was a robbery that took place at the store then next up was a friend of felton thomas now he testified this friend that thomas came to his house late on christmas eve as this gentleman cooked Um, you know a big family meal and while Thomas testified he told this friend about the events of that night the man testified that Thomas did not mention anything about something happening at the furniture store. Testimony that was provided by say Felton Thomas, Edward Williams we're seeing contradictory testimony and some of it is from this is a friend of Felton Thomas so his friend saying there's this big thing that went on and this big murder took place and this guy he's out about thomas doesn't say he's part of the murder but he's there that night in this crime scene was you know could have been murdered himself according to his storyline but he goes over to some guy's place and hanging out and drinking beer you know in the late hours of the night he doesn't mention that something like this happened in his day to me it's just so bizarre this would be the biggest thing you'd have to talk about isn't this a huge story hey this guy was trying to lure me into a store to murder me but he didn't get me he got our friend charlie mays yeah i'd mention that while we're sitting around you know cooking up dinner for tomorrow Another witness for the defense was Regina Thomas. Now, she's not related to Felton Thomas in any way. Now, she's the girl that gave Williams a lift to the garage to get his Camaro. Now, she testified that Williams did not mention Tommy's name when he talked about that night. She drove him around. Williams only said that a white guy pulled a gun on him. And this is very weird to me because Tommy's kind of small town famous. Even if this girl didn't know Tommy, she would know the name Ziegler's Furniture Store. And if she knew Edward Williams, Edward Williams worked for Tommy, he could have said my employer, Tommy Ziegler, or she might even know that he he just works for, you know, doing odd jobs for the furniture store. But he doesn't connect that the person that, that drew a gun on him was Tommy Ziegler to this woman. He's just a white guy. I think Edward Williams is still pulling together his story what he's going to tell people because so much stuff went sideways first when Eunice and her family walked in, when Edward Williams' truck wouldn't start, things slid apart on them, and he's just trying to fix it as he goes. And I don't think he's, um, I don't think he formulates his whole idea of what he needs to tell as a story until later in the night. And that's why he has that big time delay in going to the police. An investigator for the defense testified that he noticed marks on the garage door at Tommy's house that suggested that the door had been forced open from the top of the garage door. And this is important because I think before Williams realized that his truck wouldn't start after the murders, there was some back and forth finagling with the cars. Because I think Edward Williams' original plan was he was going to drive his truck away from the crime scene. I think they think Tommy's inside there dying. There would have to be, if Edward Williams takes his truck away from the crime scene, there has to be an explanation of some sort, I think, of how Tommy Ziegler got to the store that night. There was some back and forth finagling, I think, with cars, potentially with the Curtis Dunaway car that was remained at, at Tommy's house in the garage. And I think they could have forced to open that garage at some point and had removed Curtis Dunaway's car from the garage, taken to the furniture store, then they realized, oh shit, Edward Williams truck isn't starting. They gotta get the Curtis Dunaway's car back to Tommy's. It's just a theory. I mean it's wacky and I knew I think this gets to the point where it's like I don't think Edward Williams and Felton Thomas and these type of people would have came up with a theory like this. That's why I think there was someone outside that we don't know about who was maybe orchestrating some more of these bigger, more calculated decisions, I would say. Because if we don't have the story that Edward Williams drove Tommy to the store that night, which we wouldn't have if Tommy died there and Edward Williams' truck had started and he drove away, Edward Williams wouldn't be connected to that the crime scene at all. He wouldn't have come forward. He wouldn't have had a gun on him. None of this would have happened. He would have stayed quiet. And that's the goal originally is to get Edward Williams' truck out of there. Edward Williams doesn't have to be part of this. So what they do is they go to the, Tommy's garage, get the dunaway car, drive to the furniture store, leave it there. Then Edward Williams goes to start up his truck. Truck won't start. Now is this is panic time. They got to get that Curtis Dunaway car back to Tommy's house, and I think that's what's going on in that half hour between when Edward Williams says everything went down. It says when he arrived at the KFC at 8:45, but you, we know he's really arriving after 9:20. I think this is when the Curtis Dunaway car, the Oldsmobile, was being returned to Tommy's house. This also explains. Tommy's neighbor, Dr. Reeves, seeing a dark car parked in Tommy's driveway at 805 and again at 845. The killers rode in the dark car to pick up Dunaway's car at 805 from Tommy's garage. Then William's truck wouldn't start. They can't have that truck and Dunaway's car both at the store. So the killers drive Dunaway's car back to Tommy's garage with the dark car following to give the driver of Dunaway's car a lift away from Tommy's house. This theory about things going off the cars, it's hinted at in, um... Fatal Flaw by Philip Finch, but I don't think it's specifically broken down quite that clearly. I mean, he wrote the book while a lot of people were still alive, I think. You know, a lot of people were still alive, so I don't think he wanted to quite explain step by step what his theory was when it happened. I mean, definitely you can see his opinion in the the book. I think it comes across very clearly that he believed that Tommy was innocent, but he doesn't become a full-on advocate. I honestly don't see a lot of that in true crime writing, and part of that's because I read a lot of stuff that you would buy at a Rite Aid. So, ugh. But this is like a step above book. I mean, Curtis Dunaway testified about how the garage door at the furniture store was typically left open all day while the store was open. This supported a defense theory that a robber may have entered through the open garage door while the store was open and hid inside until closing and let the other robbers in. Now, personally, I kind of think that the robbers got in through that broken window that Felton Thomas um, claimed that Tommy broke in an attempt to get in the store. I don't I mean, it's possible people were there the whole time. I don't believe that they were totally I could be completely wrong with that I just feel like that window I think was broken for a reason and I think the whole thing about Tommy trying to get in without a key that's just something that's concocted to explain away the broken window and if you don't have to explain away the broken window with that stupid story you know the windows wouldn't be broken there's no reason to explain it away with like something that makes very little sense about Tommy trying to break into his own store instead of just going ha- instead of probably he always probably carries a set of keys on him. or second off going home and just grabbing a set of keys instead of breaking a damn window like that I think was a story to explain the fact that the window was broken and that's why i don't think anybody was hiding in this store the story about tommy breaking the window to get in and that's a way for tommy to make it look like it was a robbery to me makes no sense like if tommy wanted to have that window broken so it looks like robbers got in through the window i could understand that but there's no reason for tommy to do that while in the presence of felton thomas and charlie mays he could have broke that window if he killed eunice and her parents killed them now he's waiting around for charlie mays to show up just go ahead and break that window you don't have to wait till they're there and break the window break the window Get them just going through the DM door, have a key and, you know, do your killing. You don't have to break the window in front of them because it just, it just creates an element of weirdness and makes things take longer time when he's kind of working on a time crunch here if he's actually doing this. But for Steve, instead of that, where he could just break the window while he's waiting for Charlie Mays to show up, instead of that, the state's theory of events has Tommy leave the store in Curtis Dunaway's car, but they don't have any idea where Tommy went in those five minutes. Why risk being seen driving around town? Then, the defense called two witnesses to the stand to try and discredit the testimony of Thomas Hale. Now, he was the witness that had testified that he saw Tommy and Eunice driving along Dillard Street at 7.05 on Christmas Eve. Recall that he testified that Tommy was driving a car that he had sold three months before the murders so he testified that Tommy was driving a car that Tommy no longer owned but Hale's ex-wife now she testifies that Hale was a liar who often exaggerated things to make himself look more important oh shit I don't think she thinks very highly of her ex-husband and a friend of Hale's also testified in a similar fashion basically saying that Hale is a known liar who likes attention and that he likes to look bigger and more important right there based on that I almost completely throw out Hale's testimony about seeing Tommy and Eunice that night. First, he identifies them in the wrong car, and he's assuming it's the car that he knows them to have. So, I don't think he saw them that night, or he would have had the correct car. I don't know. Just to me, it just the Thomas Hale testimony... I don't find it that impressive. I also don't like that there are people that come out and actively say this guy's a liar. Sure, one of them is his ex-wife, diminishes the value of her testimony a little bit in my opinion. But and the other one is a friend. But you got people coming forward saying this guy is someone that likes attention, likes injecting himself into things to seem like an important person. And what more? How more important could you be than be the only eyewitness that places Tommy Ziegler with his soon-to-be murdered wife almost immediately before the crime takes place? His testimony is really to me is more important than say a Felton Thomas and an Edward Williams. Because I see where their motive is potentially to say mistruths. But Thomas Hale, without people coming forward and saying, Oh, this guy is a liar and he likes attention, I don't there's no there's no motive there. And his testimony there is more important to me. But now we have these people saying this stuff about him, you know, about his personality and liking attention, and I was like, uh, I'm not gonna convict somebody. Based solely on that, I'll say that. Put it that way. It's, It's not enough just to convict. And I think like, if you think about it, look at all the attention he got. He got his name in the paper. He testified in court, star witness. And 45 years later, people are still saying his name. I would have no idea who the hell Thomas Hale was if he hadn't testified in the Tommy Ziegler murder trial. He lives on. And if this is a guy that likes attention, he's mentioned in a book. He's mentioned in websites, podcasts youtube videos this guy's name comes up and it doesn't come up for anything else so if this is a guy that truly liked attention he found it so i think of it this way if you discredit and take out hale's testimony um you're left with the testimony of williams and felton thomas i think you all know that i don't believe fully either of them so you're not left with really anything next up for the defense and keep in mind this is all Fast-paced defense witness testimony is Philip Cross, one of the volunteer deputies. He testified that he drove by the furniture store a couple of minutes after eight and saw only one car parked outside, Perry and car. While at first glance, this looks good for the prosecution, but this is actually the time that according to the state's timeline, Tommy should have been inside the store killing Charlie Mays. So the Curtis Dunaway car should have been parked out front. This is one of the times where there's someone testifying that there's only one car out front and it actually goes against the prosecution's case. Whereas the other times when you hear people saying about seeing that second car and it's a dark sporty car and that goes against the prosecution. So you start to think like, oh, if you see two cars out there, that's a defense thing. But no, you saw this guy sees one car out there shortly after couple minutes after 8, he sees only one car. This is when Tommy's supposed to be inside killing Charlie Mays. And that's powerful. I don't know exactly how much the importance of Curtis Dunaway's car's absence from the store parking lot a few minutes after 8 was emphasized to the jury. I wonder if it was lost on the jury that the car should have been there at that time if Tommy actually killed Charlie then. I think this rapid witnesses and the confusion about when the car was there, when the car wasn't there. I don't know how clear the defense made this because I do not think overall that this was a very intelligent jury i think people with some brains could have figured this out but honestly even me for my first second when i read that i was like oh that's not good for for tommy there's because other people are seeing two cars and this guy only sees one and then you realize that oh shit that's when tommy's supposed to be inside killing charlie mays so curse dunway's car the car tommy supposedly drove to the crime scene that should be parked up front and it's not there now if that didn't wasn't said specifically to the jury either through the testimony and the questioning or during the closing that's a major problem now philip cross he also testified that he had no flashlight when he entered the store that night and at times he was in total darkness cross admitted that he could have accidentally kicked or moved in the store items in the dark that would have explained tommy's shoulder holster on top of dried blood near charlie may's body remember officer yawn testified that the holster was not in that spot when he first saw charlie's body so we have testimony of an officer first officer to see Charlie May's body says that holster was not in that spot on top of that blood when he first saw Charlie's body and now we have another man who was deputized at the crime scene went into the store in total darkness without a flashlight and he himself admits that he very well could have accidentally kicked something or disturbed the crime scene accidentally because it was so dark next up is Judge Van Dieter. he's the guy that was hosting the Christmas Eve party for all the police officers and law enforcement people he testified that as Tommy's attorney he had prepared wills for both both Tommy and Eunice, and that he recommended that they both increase their life insurance coverage to be able to cover potential estate tax liabilities. The judge explained that Tommy told him he had, quote, beefed up both his and Eunice's life insurance. On cross, the prosecutor really seemed to go after the judge and brought up an exchange between the judge and the insurance agent at Eunice's funeral. At trial, Judge Bandier would testify that he had advised Tommy as part of his estate planning to increase both his and Eunice's life insurance policies. Tommy's father had the stroke. Eunice became a member of the board of directors. I think it was referred to as for the furniture store. So she's taking on a role in the furniture store that she did not have previously. And that's why more life insurance would be required for Eunice. So Tommy actually applied for these policies based on the advice of his attorney. And remember, when they couldn't get anything to come out that Tommy was gay and that's why he killed his wife, they tried to make it, he killed his wife for the insurance money that he didn't need at all because he was already a millionaire. But that's what they're saying. He needs the insurance money. But right here, you have a judge, a sitting judge, who is Tommy's attorney saying, I told him to increase the amount of life insurance on both him and his wife. Now, also at the trial, after all this testimony Judge Van Dieter gives about telling Tommy to increase the insurance policies, an insurance agent testifies that at Eunice's funeral, the agent had confronted Judge Van Dieter, asking if he had recommended that Tommy get the policies. Agent testified that Judge Van Deventer said, well, I don't know anything about it, but Judge Van Deventer, a sitting judge, testified that was not what he had said. He had simply said he did not realize that Tommy had got the insurance from this specific company or in what amount. And here's the thing, I believe Judge Bandivender. I think the insurance agent was just looking for a reason not to pay out on Eunice's insurance policies. I would also like to point out what an a-hole move this is by the insurance agent bringing up Eunice's insurance policy at her own damn funeral. So an asshole agent is willing to lie to try to prevent his company from having to pay out on a policy where a woman was murdered. Do you want to believe this scumbag? I think it's disgusting. I'm constantly disappointed with people. But this judge is an officer of the court. He has no reason to lie. Are we honestly going to think that this sitting judge would perjure himself over what was said at a funeral to an insurance agent? Perjure himself. Lose his license. Lose his ability to practice law. All over this. Or do we think he's telling the truth and this scumbag piece of crap insurance agent doesn't want to get called out and have mass writing out massive policies for this woman and then she dies you know a couple months later well that's what insurance is for it's a gamble it's a gamble for people that end up paying on it for years and never use it it's a gamble for insurance company because they take these policies and hope that you're not going to die and then when you do die they do everything they can not to pay you my only point is the judge has no reason to lie and he has too much to risk by lying and the insurance agent does have a reason as pathetic as it was to lie. So I believe the judge. The insurance agent could be just trying to prevent his company from having to pay out. Just a real company man. Just a real company loser. Oh, it bothers me so much. Because not only are you doing this just to try to cover for your your damn employer, but you're willing to put an innocent man in death row and have him executed. It's not your fault that they were murdered, dude. I get that. But you know what? you gotta pay out. Oh, I'm sorry. That guy, he he makes my skin crawl. He really does. I don't even know who the hell he is. But if what I read in that Philip Finch book, if that was all true, this is disgusting. First off, we don't do that at the funeral. Also, insurance agent, just don't go to the funeral. The defense called a forensic expert who testified that embedded in the blood on the soles of Charlie May's shoes were cat hairs consistent with Tommy and Eunice's cats. So Charlie's shoes are so bloody that cat hairs are sticking to the soles, but he left no bloody footprints at the store or immediately around his own body, around his own deceased body. There's no footprints, even though he struggled. Weird. If he was guilty, why would Tommy wipe up Charlie May's shoe prints? Doesn't make much sense. You know what does make sense? Charlie's co-conspirators, you know, they wiped up Charlie's shoe prints to cover Charlie's involvement in the murders, and that makes sense. Also, keep in mind that the kennels for the cats were in Tommy's garage at his house. The garage door looked like it had been tampered with. Was Charlie in that garage at some point that night? No one knows. The expert also found gold glitter on the soles of Charlie's shoes that was similar to glitter on decorations at Tommy's house. It just looks like Charlie might have been at Tommy's house that night. Because you might say, oh, the cat hair could have been in the furniture store because Tommy's cats, he works in the store. And that is true. But it's weird that Charlie Mays has all this cat hair on the soles of his shoes. And it's particularly interesting to note that Charlie Mays has more cat hair, more fur on his shoes than is found on Eunice or Virginia's bodies. Which is noteworthy because... I mean they're Eunice's cats she's with them constantly she took one to the vet that day and Virginia was you know spending time at home with Eunice so clearly Eunice and Virginia would have had a lot more time with the cats than Charlie Mays would right I mean if the idea is that he just Charlie Mays gets the fur on his feet simply because he's picking it up at the furniture store you wouldn't think he'd pick up more fur that's transferred from Tommy and Eunice's house than, you know Eunice and Virginia would have got From being at the actual house where the cats lived. It just makes you wonder about Charlie and how he got all that cat fur on him. Why would Charlie have more pet hair on him than the two women? I don't know for sure. But in this back and forth with the car was Charlie Mays at some point one of the people that went to Tommy's house to get the Curtis Dunaway vehicle. It's things like this that like gnaw at you. Like how did this all I think I know in my mind who's guilty and who but I don't know who did what or who did what when and um it's exhausting what this can do to your mind because it's just so much fog in this case. This expert also testified about shards of glass found in a bloody area on the floor that was east of the customer service counter. These bits of glass matched a pair of broken glasses that were found in Perry Edwards shirt pocket. This area is where the defense thought that the attack started on Eunice and her folks. Now the next witness for the defense was Tommy himself. Bold move defense team. But Tommy is smart, not quick to row, and innocent. So I say, yeah, get this guy up there to testify. The only negative about Tommy is that people seem to think he comes across as detached. You know, that he keeps his emotions to himself. And that may, might make him look rather cold. Tommy is not the type of guy to weep in front of a lot of strangers. That's my point. But I've heard the man talk. He comes across to me as a man who loved his wife and loved his life. I wouldn't hesitate to put him on the stand you rarely get a defendant anything like this guy on the stand tommy denied ever meeting or even knowing of frank smith's existence before the trial frank was a guy that bought the two cheap revolvers found at the crime scene tommy said that he never spoke to mary Stewart about purchasing any guns let alone hot guns tommy testified that he had never seen the two gun boxes that were found in the store and the gun shop owner had miraculously recalled giving Tommy when he purchased different guns in the store. These were two boxes that weren't attached to the serial number. They were not attached to any, you know, make, model, anything like that related to the guns Tommy bought. But the gun shop owner was able to say, those were the ones I gave Tommy. Well, Tommy's right there in the stand saying, I never saw those boxes before. Now, Tommy did admit that he often touched grocery bags. (laughs) No. Oh my god, oh my god, do you have to admit that? I often touch grocery bags too. I assume we all do. But anyway, he admits he touches some grocery bags. And that might explain his palm print on that grocery bag that was in the cabinet. Now, whoever planted that evidence, the blue rag from... Curtis Dunway's car, the two gun boxes, the empty cartridges and bullets, were, they were all just placed in pre-existing bag that came from the store in my opinion, if they were planted. But that's my idea is what happened. They found a paper bag in the store and that bag happened to have Tommy's handprints on it. It could also, I'm curious to see if anybody else's fingerprints or prints were found on it. But I think a pre-existing bag was taken from the store and they popped that stuff into the bag. Other than the blue towel, none of it looks suspicious, really. I mean... The existence of the gun boxes looks suspicious to me because it seems like they were planted because why the hell would these random gun boxes be there? It doesn't make any sense. And I really don't know what the hell that gun store owner is talking about. When he didn't even wait on Tommy when Tommy made the purchase and he says he knows what boxes were given to Tommy even though they're not the ones that correspond to the guns Tommy actually purchased. And it turns out those guns that actually went into those boxes weren't sold to months after Tommy had bought the guns that he was buying. Sounds like a cracker to me. But anyway, It does kind of explain something important here. Tommy's prints are on that bag. And they're not on anything that's inside the bag. And that's weird. Very weird. Those boxes would have prints on them. Container for cartridges. That could have prints on it. The towel wouldn't. Bullets could. But the only thing that has one of Tommy's prints on it is the bag containing these items. And that's part of the reason part of it. I'll get in farther later into my theories and conspiracies about what actually happened is I think that evidence was planted. Next, Tommy testifies that he kept the Securities 38 in a custom built-in desktop inside his truck and this was the gun that killed Perry and Virginia. Tommy stated that Edward Williams was often inside his truck and that Williams even drove Tommy's truck numerous times. The last time that Tommy remembered seeing the gun was four to six weeks before Christmas. He explained that he kept the gun covered with rags so it wasn't right out in sight. So it was tucked back in there and covered up. He wasn't always in there looking for that gun is my point. And um, he hadn't seen it for a while. Doesn't necessarily mean that it was missing. Tommy also testified that the lock on the passenger door was broken and would not lock. Then Tommy was questioned about the day of the murders. Tommy recalled that Charlie Mays had been in the store in the morning and Tommy admitted that he showed Charlie the used TV that the store was selling on consignment for $350 cash it was not an item to be put on layaway it was not an item to be paid for over time it was a cash item for sale because it was on consignment. You guys know what consignment is. That means the store didn't buy it and own it and sell it. Someone had taken it to the store to sell it and whoever actually owned that TV would get the bulk of the money and the store would take a cut of whatever of that three-fifths, like a commission we'll say. Tommy didn't think Charlie would buy that TV because Charlie was already behind on payments to the store. So because he's behind his payments, Tommy had told him he had to put a larger deposit down than was normally required on the linoleum that he bought that day. So get that, he doesn't even have the money to pay for the linoleum outright. He's putting that on credit. And he's already behind on what he owes to that store. So Tommy's thinking, it's $350 TV. That's an expensive TV. That's an expensive TV to me now. Definitely expensive in the 1970s. According to Tommy, there was no conversation about Charlie returning to the store after hours to pick up a TV. He explained that he had told Curtis Dunaway to turn off the lights in the store windows because he didn't think many people would be out window shopping on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. And this tracks for me. This is on brand for Tommy. Tommy was frugal. Why waste the electricity? That's what I'm thinking Tommy's thinking is. No one's going to be out driving around. Let's see if they got anything in the furniture store. So why bother leaving the lights on overnight? Because the lights, not only that, the store's going to be closed the next day. Not only would the lights be on all night, all those store lights would be on Christmas Day as well. Also notes in his testimony that while he waited for Edward Williams to arrive at his house that night, Tommy went through his house turning off the lights. To me, I understand this. I turn off the lights before I leave the house or even more generally when I leave a room for a long period of time. My husband doesn't. It's just habit. It's how you're raised, that's all. This is what I'm saying about the lights in the store. So he knows he's gonna be going out with this guy, he's gonna go out from there, he's probably gonna dash back home and maybe change and then go to the um go to the party. So he's thinking I'm gonna be out here delivering this stuff and doing these little runarounds with Edward Williams to have the lights out. So that's just to me, he's thinking this is the type of guy that thinks about turning off the lights when he leaves the house for an hour or an hour and a half. He's the type of guy that's gonna be like, Do I really need to leave these lights on? Were they gonna be on for a whole weekend? I don't know. Anyway, Tommy was getting irritated that Williams was late. Now recall that Tommy said Williams was supposed to meet him at 7 and Williams said the meeting was planned for 7 30 now Tommy left a note for Williams and then set out for the liquor store once he realizes that Williams is a little bit late so sometime after 7 he's tired of waiting around he's saying I'm gonna go grab that bourbon gets part way to the liquor store only to turn back he didn't want to waste any more time he figured he could stop for bourbon while he was with Williams probably on the way to the furniture store instead of being like oh crap Williams could be there waiting for me now we because we're out doing this stuff I think Tommy is a person it's like jumble of energy keep moving keep moving keep moving then he realized, wait, why do I want to keep moving here. This is gonna suck up more time, so we could do this quicker in another way. Tommy was worried that he wouldn't be back and ready in time for when Eunice returned from the church services, and that they would be really late to the party. And this was a couple that was already kind of always known for being late to stuff. And I think he was just like, oh, let's not be super late. Let's just be our regular late selves. Okay. So when Tommy got back to his house, Edward Williams was there waiting for him. So Tommy was right. It would have been as silly of him to take time to go get that bourbon because the guy's already waiting for you right now. So Tommy parked Curtis Dunaway's car in his garage and hopped in Williams' truck and they set off for the furniture store. When they arrived at the store, Tommy got out and unlocked and opened a gate for Williams to drive through. Williams drove over, To the overhead doors and park while Tommy locked the gate back up. Tommy then entered the rear of the store through the back door. And this locking in the gate, this was something that they always did. Like I said, like the turning out the lights is almost automatic. I think this locking in the gate thing was also automatic because they didn't ever want to have the store open where people were coming in and out of it at nighttime and have those gates open so people could come in and rob the store. So Tommy enters the rear of the store through the back door and he tried switching on a light, but it didn't work. So still in the dark, Tommy walks a little further down the hallway. I mean, I'm guessing he just thinks the bulb burn out, that's what I would think, and try to switch on another light that again that one didn't work either. Now Tommy passed through the end of the hallway into the showroom and was immediately struck on his head. Tommy loses his glasses and without his glasses remember that Tommy is legally blind and it's dark in there. Now he describes two blurs attacking him. Keep in mind he's legally blind, it's dark, and he has been struck on the head. So he doesn't have great descriptions of these people and I understand that. They're just blurs to him. Tommy pulled out his 22 that he carries on himself in a holster. Tommy couldn't remember if he actually shot the gun but he recalled that it did jam twice and he just threw the gun at his attackers. So there's a chance he could have gotten a shot off in there. He does not know. Tommy described being tossed around and bounced off of the walls. That's what he said and I could see that because Tommy is a tall man. He's over six foot but he's very slight. I mean he's kind of broad-shouldered but he's not um he's, he's very thin. You know what I mean? He would be a person that could be tossed around um and especially when he can't see and this is a surprise and he's already been hit on the head. You know this is a lot coming at you at once. Now when he's being bounced off these walls, and throw it all around Tommy he's hearing things falling and glass breaking he can't describe his attackers very well and he said there were two of them and that one was as tall as Tommy or maybe taller and Tommy is 6'2 and that's a pretty tall man so so we know Tommy said I think the other guy was at least my height he's at least 6'2 maybe taller. And the other man was shorter. As Tommy is tossed around, he hits into a desk and some chairs and he scrambles to the desk drawer and gets a three fifty seven Magnum that is kept just loose in the drawer. Guys, not safe. Don't do that. But anyway, Tommy was thrown into the showroom and he can't remember if he got off any shots from the Magnum, but he knew that he tried to fire the gun. Then he started striking his attackers with the Magnum, including the mouth area of one of his attackers. And keep in mind that Charlie Mays is missing a tooth. So, Tommy might have knocked that out when he's smashing somebody in the face with a gun. And there's another missing tooth. You know, there's a, a loose tooth found on the floor of the store that's different than the tooth that was also recovered to matched uh, the empty socket in Charlie Mays' mouth. So it could be Charlie Mays he's hitting with that gun. It could be somebody else. He might have knocked out two teeth right then. You just don't know. But what we do know is two teeth were knocked out at that crime scene. And Tommy's saying he's smashing a magnum into somebody's mouth, so... Could be there. Now, Tommy was thrown towards the linoleum racks, and in the process, he hit the floor and he lost the gun. As he struggled to get to his feet, Tommy was shot. As Tommy was laying on the floor, bleeding from a gut wound, Tommy heard someone say, Mace has been hit. Kill him. The assailants left, and Tommy crawled around looking for his glasses. In that darkness, Tommy crawled over a dead body he doesn't know whose. Most likely, I would say it was Charlie Mays or Perry Edwards. Tommy found a spare pair of glasses from a desk and he made his way to the phone at the customer service desk and called the judge's party asking for help. After the phone call, Tommy made his way towards the front of the store and he laid down in a lawn chair waiting for the police to arrive. On cross-examination, Tommy kept his cool while the prosecutor almost cede with hate, just dripping out of his pores. The prosecutor accused Tommy of calling Maddie Mays, Edward Williams, and Felton Thomas liars. And I think that prosecutor is acting like a child. I don't like this. This is something I would have said when someone disagreed with me when I was a little kid. You're allowed to disagree with people and believe they have a different recollection of events without necessarily calling them liars. Even though I think they might be. But they're trying to paint Tommy in a real bad spot here because one of these people, Maddie Mays, is one of the victims. You know, her husband's laying dead in the store. So Tommy doesn't want to be up there calling that woman a liar, even if she is. You can't say that. But anyway, Tommy, he quite ably sidestepped the loaded question, explaining he wasn't calling anybody a liar, but that the conversations and events did not unfold as those people described them. Tommy explained he had never seen Felton Thomas before the preliminary hearing. The prosecutor asked why Felton Thomas would tell such a story about Tommy right there should have been an objection because that's speculation that's why like think, I think this defense team just I, I don't get it because these are supposed to be like really good lawyers and I think they are I just don't understand how they lost this case but right there why would he should have not required to explain why Felton Thomas would lie I think we all know why he would lie but it's speculation. That's objectable and it doesn't look like it was objected to. Maybe it was because I know their objections were always overruled but I I just don't know for sure. But anyway it bothers me. But anyway Tommy replied that he had no knowledge of any reason why Felton Thomas would tell such a story and Tommy was excused from the witness stand. The defense rested. The prosecution began calling rebuttal witnesses. Now rebuttal witnesses are limited to the scope of testimony put on by the defense. Tommy had testified that on Christmas Eve, we were happier than when we got married. That's according to him about his relationship with Eunice. The statement opened up the idea of Eunice's view of the state of their marriage. If Tommy had just said that he was happier, this wouldn't have been an issue. Tommy is smart. I think his lawyers could have prepared him a little better on the idea of not speaking to Eunice's view of the relationship because the prosecution now had a way to bring in potentially all that homosexual bullshit that they were just chomping at the bit to get in front of the jury. There's a narrow path open here, and it wouldn't be open if Tommy had been told to only talk about his feelings about the marriage. It's it's just one of those things. Perhaps they did, but I just don't think Tommy was told that because I think Tommy would have retained that. He's much too smart to, to be messing up like this, and he's much too cool under pressure. I don't think he would panic have said something that he wasn't, that he'd been specifically told not to say. Now, the prosecution was just desperate to get any of that testimony that they had drummed up which really isn't anything about tommy being a homosexual and eunice being unhappy in the marriage they want to get that in front of the jury but they weren't going to be able to call eunice's hairdresser apparently that woman wasn't willing to testify under oath but the prosecution had found another witness a woman who had known eunice for about a year. About a month before Christmas, Eunice had complained to the woman about her marriage to Tommy. Then the woman said that Eunice spotted her at the drive-in. Apparently, Eunice just pulled up beside this woman and told her while she's at the drive-in interrupting this woman watching a movie. Eunice told her that she was afraid and that Tommy had taken out insurance on her. The woman had claimed in an earlier statement that Eunice had just learned about the life insurance in December. But this is verifiably untrue because Eunice had to take physicals for the insurance and sign the applications. So, she knew about them when... They were applied for, and also she had to reschedule the physical because she made a trip to visit her family, I think, in Georgia. So one of the physicals had to be rescheduled. So there's no, this woman had just found out about it. Eunice knew about these. It was planned. So just you know, her testimony is it's verifiably untrue. Also, who the hell would see somebody at a drive-in and go up and start talking to them about their marriage problems? the people who are at a drive-in and can you even pull up beside somebody at a drive-in. I go to a drive-in and you don't just see somebody there and be like, get your car. They're all packed in together. Maybe. Drive-ins were different, but where we are now, you're like in a field situation, and you're all you go in an allotments. You don't be like parked when there's big spaces in between people where other people could come in later and pull up beside you. I just don't know how drive-ins work, in my opinion. But anyway, so I just don't really believe this story. I don't think Tommy's gay, and I just I think all this stuff's all hanky and disgusting. And I think the uh the investigators, the prosecution, they're just really anti-gay in a way that's very unsettling. I mean, this doesn't age well, people. You know what I mean? But anyway, you know you has signed the insurance application in september and even went for a physical exam so we all know that she knew about this at least in september so this she just found out about in december according to this woman it's a lie but beyond that the defense felt that this testimony was hearsay because it is and for once the judge actually sustained one of the defense's objections and this woman's testimony was not admitted into evidence so just think about that the prosecution and the police had spent so much time investigating this angle that tommy was secretly gay and that's why he wanted out of this marriage they found a hairdresser that was willing to say it then she wouldn't say it under oath they find this other woman who was an acquaintance of eunice's and she's saying stuff that you know is not true and she's not even getting into the gay stuff so much as is that she's just unhappy in the marriage? but part of what she's saying is also doesn't line up with what the facts of the case are so they couldn't come up with anything but The jury never even gets to hear this, and they spent all that time trying to track this down when they didn't try to track down anything to verify Edward Williams and what he said and the weird thing about his clothes. It's just so much effort was put into that, and it was pointless because it doesn't even get before the jury. But it just shows how strongly that the investigators were just focused on Tommy, even when it didn't make that much sense. They're not able to get this lady in, so they call an insurance agent and the custodian of records for the medical examiner. But this testimony worked for the defense, in my opinion. The medical examiner, she testified that Eunice was not wearing her heirloom diamond cocktail ring that she always wore, and that no cash was found on Perry, Virginia, or Eunice. These are incredibly wealthy people. Incredibly wealthy people. And not one of them had a bit of cash on them. And Eunice's Heirloom Diamond Cocktail Ring. Now you people that don't know what a cocktail ring is, you might not. If you're a dude, you might not know what it is. If you're a lady of today, you might not know what it is. I love a cocktail ring. What they are is sometimes they could be costume, but hard as a diamond. And a cocktail ring is a large ring. It'd be like an evening party ring, but she wore it all the time. But it's like a bigger ring. It's not like a simple wedding band or something like that. It's ornate. It's something that really, um, 40s, 50s, 60s people wore them. And they don't have to be diamond. You can have other gemstones or something. It's just a big, bold, flashier ring. And, um, if hers is diamonds and it's a cocktail ring, that's going to be a very expensive ring. And it's missing. Now, her wedding rings, those were recovered from the scene. But there's no money on any of these victims, except for Charlie Mays. His pants or his pockets are stuffed full of cash. But Harry, Virginia, Eunice, no money on any of them. And Eunice is missing a very expensive ring. I don't know why. Honest to gosh, I don't know why the prosecution called those people as rebuttal witnesses. But I also don't know why. Why wouldn't the defense have called that, the medical examiner custodian of records? That's important to note. If the prosecution hadn't called them, that would never have gotten onto the record. I mean, because this all goes to show robbery as a motive. And the prosecution then rested. Probably all sad that they couldn't get that weird homosexual testimony before the jury. And after what sounds like fairly unremarkable closing arguments, the case was turned over to the jury on Wednesday afternoon. And this is where I'm leaving you because in our next talk, we're going to be addressing jury deliberations and what happens. Everything keeps getting weirder and weirder in this case, but it's one of the big weird turns in the case. Like I thought when Edward Williams and Felton Thomas come up with their wacky stories, that was a big pivotal moment. And this is a big pivotal moment that's going to come up during deliberations because one of the jurors doesn't want to convict Tommy Ziegler and the judge and the other members of the jury do everything they can to wear this woman down.